hand in hand we walk each day. Now that song is perhaps a favorite of many of us, or at least the words are so familiar to us and reminding us that our sojourn through this life, as long as it's hand in hand with the Master, everything will be all right. And that's certainly comforting and also very, very compelling in so many ways. It's good to be able to assemble this Sunday morning, to be blessed with this opportunity. Good to see everyone able to be here today. Eddie mentioned it earlier, right before our services began, but isn't it remarkable how the weeks have passed and the gospel meeting is now right upon us? Plans for this began to be made months and months ago as we contacted Brother Brandt and, in fact, made all those arrangements, and now it's almost here. Continue to invite folks to come and be with us and encourage them to come, and certainly we'd be delighted to have them and encourage them and maybe even some Bible studies come out of those particular invitations as well. Then cometh the end. The title I've given to the lesson today is identically the first four words of 1 Corinthians 15, 24. As we develop some of the considerations of that this morning, let's begin with this introductory set of slides. The word end, by and large, is a word with which we're so very familiar. Sometimes as you watch a movie on TV, you watch the fullness of the movie and when he gets to the very last scene, the very last element, if you please, at least in the olden days, it's the end. Or maybe you read a book, and as you move and motivate through the various chapters of that book, you finally arrive at the last page, and it's the end. Those are just two examples with which we're quite comfortable with the word end. We know what it means. On the slide, I've just given you a definition. It has to do with termination, the limit at which a thing ceases to be. The movie has reached its termination. The book has reached, if you please, that which has drawn it to its conclusion. All of that to say that the Bible often uses the word end, and one of the passages is the very one that comes to, to our attention this morning. It's certainly of note that you might observe 1 Corinthians 15, 24. As you're reading through that chapter, you suddenly arrive at this verse, and Paul by inspiration says, Then the end. It's almost as if there's an, ed- an element of emphasis, an element of stark consideration that captures your attention and mind. Paul, in the midst of a chapter, the end You and I know well from the context the kind of thing that Paul had in mind and that which the Holy Spirit wished to bring to your attention and mind today. But I do think it's startling to note the emphasis given, then cometh the end. For the next few moments this morning, why don't we develop some matters attached to this phrase, then cometh the end. As you and I do that, we'll be reminded that on the occasion under description, It'll be the ending of several things. Several different things are all going to reach their point of termination at that same time. What are they? What are some of these things that you and I should be critically aware of so that we can live rightly, positively, righteously, and in a way to where the end need not trouble us? First things first. Let's first of all give some attention to this. The word end, you see, I think would immediately bring to our mind that one of the matters of consideration, time itself. 
if you're going to talk about the end of the physical realm of matters, surely that would bring to our matter the appreciation of time as you and I know it. Let's use that as our first element of major discussion this morning. Time. Oh, how often will you and I sometimes comment, I don't have enough time. Or maybe you, in response to a question someone has asked, I meant to get to it, I I just didn't have time. Or sometimes you and I are quick to say, the time has passed by so quickly. May I suggest to each of us that the reality of the matter is, time itself is something that was a matter of God's fabric of creation. I realize well that there was no thing on day one where it says He created time, and day two where He created time. But time is merely a matter of reckoning the span between events. And the fact that God made an orderly creation in a sequential order of consideration, that meant that time was an ingredient of it. Time? Later in Genesis 1.14, the matter is directly said that with regard to the various celestial bodies, they were made for days and for years. In other words, there was to be an aspect in which the human family could employ and appreciate the movement of those heavenly bodies to record the passage of what you and I would call time. Time is surely a thing that is quite a matter of intrigue to you and I. We wear wristwatches, there are clocks on a wall, our computer always has on the front screen, it seems, a recording issue of a clock. Quite often in our cars and trucks and other things like that, there's also a timekeeping device. We are critically aware of the passage of time. And yet on that slide before you, you and I could easily observe that Jesus Himself would speak in John chapter 6 at length about the last day. Although there are lots of days... And in terms of the time since the world was created, many, many of them, there will be a last one. That is to say, a particular moment beyond which there will be no more earthly days. The last one will have taken place. In fact, a trio of times in John chapter 6, Jesus made reference to the last day. The day beyond which there would be no more. Surely all that reminds us then that time, as you and I know it, is not going to go on perpetually. There shall come a time, if you'll pardon that phraseology, wherein time will reach its end. Then cometh the end. You may notice on that slide that Jesus Himself referred to a circumstance, a set of events, after the reality of that end, in which He employed the words eternal and everlasting. He did that reminding all of us that the existence beyond the realities of this life will be such that there will be no termination to it. But at least in this flesh, then cometh the end. The last point on that slide is this one. One of the things that is a critical part of our aging process that reminds us about this passage of time is the Bible's teaching of incorruptibility. Aren't you and I critically aware that as this body ages and ceases to be able to do what it once could, 
And the capacities and capabilities of this frame are such that they wane with time. You and I realize well that the Bible does speak about an incorruptible body that's provided for that realm beyond this one. But at least for now, you and I should think more carefully about then cometh the end. So if time is one of the things that shall end, what else will also cease to be? What about this material universe in which we live? It, quite frankly, is all that you and I, by experience, have ever known. We have never lived beyond the realm of this fleshly existence. From the time we were a babe and entered this world, we have come to know it. By intuition, we know a lot about the way it operates. We appreciate its beauty. We observe the characteristics of the orderliness with which God has invested it. As majestic in many ways as this material universe appears to be, it is to be noted that when the end comes, it too will have its end as well. Then cometh the end. Would you reflect with me on Second Peter chapter 3? You might recall in the developments of that chapter, Peter first called to attention his readers to a reminder of the flood of Noah's day. At that time, the earth was destroyed by water. At that time, you and I recall that as the fountains of the great deep were opened and the windows of heaven as well, that there was water that covered the very highest hill on earth by 15 cubits, according to Genesis chapter 7. And yet, as that particular observation was made, Peter was quick to say, although the earth was destroyed then by water, it is now being reserved to a destruction by fire. That all leads us then to appreciate there are some who have at least labored under the illusion that this earth is somewhat permanent, as if it shall last forever, as if it will be remade in some way and offer a rather powerful abode for some aspect of the faithful. And yet you and I come face to face with verses like this one in 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, listen, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Peter rather dramatically spoke about a circumstance in which this earth and all that is her environment and is her shall be consumed, burned up. It will be no more. Trees, mountains, things humans have made like cars and tractors and otherwise, it will all be gone. It will not survive the end. Is it any wonder then in light of that truth that you and I should remember this earth is large. It surely appears to be so lasting and stable. It appears as if it shall maintain, but it won't. When the end comes, among the things that shall meet their end, not only will time end, but so too this material universe. The Greek verb that's used in that text of 2 Peter 3.10, dissolved. It seemingly suggests to the varied element of the atoms themselves, it will be consumed. 
it will surely be a fire, a burning, if you will, unlike any. Aren't you amazed sometimes how men, how scientists, how others have presupposed that certain things in the history of planet Earth have taken place? And sometimes great volcanic eruptions have led to fires over thousands of square miles. And yet those won't hold a candle to the fire at the last event when the entire planet, everything about it will be consumed. That's a great reminder and a powerful lesson, I would suggest, not only for the reality of understanding the power of our God, but also a reminder how that this earth was never fashioned in such a way at this moment it was meant to be a permanent thing. No wonder in that light as you look forward on that slide, wasn't it Jesus who said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will not. Doesn't that help you appreciate that what you hold in your hand will last longer than planet earth? That's kind of fascinating. Kind of a powerful reminder that this, you see, is more sturdy, more steady, more lasting, more permanent than even this gigantic fixture upon which we walk. The Word of God will stand forever, 1 Peter 1.25. Perhaps in light of that connection, there are some things about the implication of earth and its passing away that surely reminds us of some other teachings. Although it may not be a passage that quickly comes to our mind, could I offer you a thought of Hebrews chapter 1? There, there's a description made about the ending of time, about the end that you and I would call the end of earth. Listen to the way this is described. Hebrews chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse number 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish. But thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. The inspired writer, as he highlighted the supremacy of Jesus and the greatness attached to his regime... Don't you find it remarkable in the midst of that presentation? He said, think about the heavens and even the earth. Although you are permanent, Lord Jesus Christ, you will last forever. Even the grandeur of these heavens, even the majesty of earth, they will be folded up like an old garment. After a hard day of work, sometimes you come in, you take off the old dirty garment, and you toss it into a hamper ready to be washed. The inspired writer says these heavens are going to be folded up at some point. Time as we know it in the material universe shall cease to be. Isn't this a reminder of the majesty and power of our God who, when the end comes, all of this... Material character as you and I appreciate it and quite often think so much of it. It shall be no more. Let me close that slide with the question then that Peter raised as he addressed this. We just noted a moment ago, verse number 10, in which the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. But what about verse 11? Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? in all holy conversation and godliness. Isn't it so 
that sometimes you and I can give so much of ourselves in pursuit of what will be burned up. Peter said, if that be the case, if it be so that these things, these material matters will cease to be, then why do you give yourself, in completeness at least, and in entirety to pursuing what's going to be burned up? Wouldn't it be far better to pursue godliness, to pursue service to God, obedience and honesty in His sight? Surely, the point is an absolute and affirming yes. What else will end under the banner of 1 Corinthians 15, 24? May I offer you another one? The entire context of 1 Corinthians 15 is a description of the resurrection. Some will call it the resurrection chapter of the Bible. That's certainly a very fair description. And yet in the midst of it, as Paul challenged the church at Corinth, there were some who were under the illusion that there was going to be no resurrection. In fact, you may revisit and notice one of the verses and one of the questions that Paul rather directly asked them. 1 Corinthians 15, would you note with me verse number 13? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And that was preceded by verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some in Corinth who were teaching, who were asserting, who were declaring that there is no resurrection. Now, that, of course, was a false teaching. That is a false belief. It is not right. And in the verses that follow, Paul challenged them to think more earnestly and carefully about the fact there is a resurrection. But may I offer you this thought, that when the end comes, not only will there be the end of time, and not only will there be the end of the material universe, there will be the end of an awful lot of religious error. There is religious error. There are things that men have taught and continue to teach which are not right, which the Bible does not endorse, and which God never, in fact, set forth. May I call your attention to a few verses. In 2 Peter 2, verse 1, in the midst of that book in which Peter encourages so much about growth and godly living, might you and I never forget that one of the greatest oppositions to spiritual growth... One of the greatest hindrances to proper development in the Lord is false teaching. And so Peter said this, There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. 2 Peter 2 verses 1 and 2. You noticed it just as I did, didn't you? Peter, with affirmation, said, Don't you remember there were false prophets among the people of old? There will be false teachers among you. He didn't say there might be. He didn't say there could be. He didn't say there will perhaps be. He said there shall be. You and I need to realize the fact that sadly, tragically, almost catastrophically, Men and women have chosen to follow what the Bible does not teach. They have used substitutions for thus saith the Lord. That was true in the Lord's day. It was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. 
No wonder the following admonition is so carefully given to you and me. 1 John 4 verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. Some spirits are not of God. Some spirits are not consistent thus in their teaching and declaration with what the Bible would uphold. In light of all of that, let's then portray that end. Those who denied the Lord will admit that day they were wrong. Those who have in fact cast a dim spotlight upon the church will admit that day it was the most important thing. Those who have failed to obey the gospel will sadly then realize it's too late. Their opportunities are gone. But religious error is going to reach its end that day. As you stand before the great presence of the Son of God Himself, as you come to appreciate that His return will signal the reality of all of that which He promised, religious error will be no more. There will be by that day that's an atheist. There will be no atheists on that ending day because they're going to be standing in the presence of the God who's going to judge them. All those choices and decisions will then be for naught, and they'll recognize fully they were mistaken. Won't it be sad to realize you were wrong and could do nothing about it then? Religious error will have met its end. Isn't it amazing then to contemplate verses like 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 12? You see, God will allow you and me to believe a lie. He won't miraculously intervene and cause our thinking to recognize, well, that's a lie. He will let us believe it if we're foolish enough to do so. If we, under the banner of the moment, fail to compare what some teacher has said versus this book, He will let us believe it. Doesn't that remind us of the earnestness, the sincerity, and the obligation that rests with us to be like those nobles of Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. You see, the Word of God has within it the answers and the proper approach. And you and I will not then be victims of religious error. But error will meet its end when the end comes. One last thing on that slide is this. What a great warning is presented to one and all under the banner of 2 Thessalonians 1, where Paul there reminded one and all, to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To those who haven't obeyed, this just reminds us that more comments are in order as we contemplate the end. What about the fourth element that shall meet its end? When Christ Jesus returns, time will be no more. The material universe will be no more. Religious error will be no more. What about the fourth one? Human rebellion. Aren't you and I sometimes shocked? Or at least astounded? that mankind can have such nerve to, in essence, stand before the God of heaven and rebel against Him. Now, the Bible more than once describes rebellion, how awful it is. 
you and I could begin by saying that in a sense, all of us know what this is like because we've all sinned. Romans 3.23 so loudly shouts that all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. But with that rebellion comes this truth. Although you and I have chosen, and although we have made the decision to act in ways that are rebellious, oh, how thankful we can be we have come to our senses. But that can't be said of everybody. There are those, of course, who choose to live in sin in an ongoing way, rebelling against the Lord, against His will, choosing their own course through life. And yet all the while, that idea in rebellion brings you to some of the remaining matters upon this slide. You and I remember when Jesus described this at length in Matthew 25. You recall how you began the chapter. There were ten virgins. Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Now the bridegroom delayed and they didn't know exactly when the bridegroom would arrive and hence preparation was key. That's the major point of that whole parable. Preparation was key. You and I remember five of them, they not only brought oil for the immediate moment, but they brought some extra just in case the bridegroom delayed. Now the five foolish ones, they brought enough oil for the moment, but they didn't bring any more. And so if the bridegroom had come when they thought he would, everything would have been fine. But he didn't. He delayed. And so their oil ran out. And suddenly when the word came, the bridegroom is now arriving. He is shortly to arrive. And so they all began to hustle about and trim their lamps. And the five wise ones had enough oil because they brought some. The five foolish, you see, had no more. Their oil had run out and they didn't have any. So now they had to go and try to buy some or find some, purchase some, so they'd be ready. And sure enough, while they were away, the bridegroom arrived. Everyone went into the celebration. The doors were shut. And they were not allowed entrance, even when they returned with some oil. What a sad spectacle. They had failed to prepare. They had failed to make ready. At that point, the doors were shut, and they weren't allowed to participate, to enjoy the festivities and all that went with it. Isn't that a sobering reflection for all of us? To ensure that you and I make ready for the end? Because when the end comes, there will be no preparation then. All preparation has to have been made prior. That was the point of the five wise and five foolish virgins. As you keep that idea in mind, look at then what happens next. That rich man in Lazarus, under the description of Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. In this life, oh, how things went so smoothly for that rich man. He fared sumptuously each day. He was clothed in fine apparel. He had at his disposal everything to meet the momentary needs of the flesh. But then he died. On the other hand, in life, Lazarus seemingly was bereft of every comfort this life had to offer. He was sick. It was such that he had to be laid, you notice, at the gate of the rich man. 
And even dogs licked his sores. He didn't have any money for a doctor. The only ease, the only comfort, the only respite that he had. But he died too. But in death, oh, how the roles were reversed. Lazarus, who had had so little, now had everything. He was comforted. He was in the blessed joy of that state beyond this life. The rich man, on the other hand, though here he had it all. There he had nothing but a burning tongue. He had nothing but what he described as torment. And he even could see Lazarus afar off in the bosom of Abraham. But you see, the circumstances were such that the end had come. The end had arrived. Time, the material universe, human rebellion... You and I recognize well that religious error, all of it, will have reached its end. As you and I close that slide, aren't we in a position to recollect that text in Hebrews 9, 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. The Bible doesn't use that phrase in a way that, that's encouraging morbidity. You know, we as Bible people are happy people. Death doesn't scare us. It is not a topic we avoid because we understand well how prepared. And with that preparation, one can look upon death. And so, the fifth and last one we'll discuss this morning. There will be the end of death as well. Back in this text that we've been considering in 1 Corinthians 15... Brother Vestal read verse 24 a moment ago. Let me continue on into 25 and 26. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You see, among the things we can choose to list will be the end will include death. Jesus is presently reigning over His kingdom. I realize there are many in the religious world who teach He's not. They assert He's not going to reign till He reigns in Jerusalem for a thousand years, but that's just a lie. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. He's reigning now. As He sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, He's reigning over His kingdom, which is the church. And oh, what a superb reign it is. You may notice on that slide, but this text says, He must reign till He hath put all enemies under His feet. He will reign, you see, until that last enemy, which is death, will be destroyed. And when the Lord Jesus returns, death will be no more. There will be no more dying. There will be no cessation of life that way. Because you see, at that point, those who happen to be alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. They won't have any opportunity to respond. If they aren't ready then, it'll be too late to do anything about it. There'll be an immediate change. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us the graves are going to be opened. All the dead are going to rise. The faithful will rise to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with Him. So you see, there'll be no more death. There'll be nothing along that line. No wonder in that connection, 
you and I might now appreciate that Revelation even tells us in Revelation 20, verses 13 to 15, even Hades, that realm of departed spirits, all those souls that have been in there will flood out of it and re-inhabit these bodies that God has prepared for them. Because Hades is empty, it too will be cast into hell. It'll be cast into that eternal abode because there will be no longer any need for it. Then comes the end. The end is going to include death. Oh, for those who are prepared and ready, what a day of rejoicing, a day of celebration, absolute happiness to realize that those efforts and labor expended here in obedience and faithfulness will now be rewarded eternally with words like this. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Matthew 25, 23. But for those unprepared, those who have in fact used that time, but not as a time of adequate preparation, they will hear words like this. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Or for others who once had been known by Him, He'll say, I know you not, Luke 13. Some will hear, I never heard, I never knew you. Others will hear, I know you not. As if He did know them at one time, but at that moment He no longer does. Where do you and I stand today? The end is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? The end might come this afternoon. It could. Might be tonight. Might be before sunrise tomorrow. None of us know when, have no idea. But the key element, the key idea, as asserted in Matthew 24 and 25, is we must be ready, prepared, anchored in the truth of God, so that whenever that moment comes, it will not matter to us, because we'll be prepared for it. When the end comes, several things will have thus been terminated. Religious error, time, the material universe, human rebellion, death, just to name five. But surely among the truths you and I have learned in passing today is this reminder that when that end comes, also at an end is the opportunity for response. You have that opportunity now, and so do I. If you aren't right with the Lord, don't wait another moment. It's too risky. It's too dangerous. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth in the words of Proverbs 27.1. If there's someone in this audience that at this point is distant from the salvation and redemption offered through the blood of Jesus Christ, God is pleading with you. He is begging you. He is imploring that you give serious to where you now stand, where your soul's condition now is, in light of the thought of the end. You and I ought to be wise today. Just like Jesus encouraged those to be in Matthew 25, we want to be among the five wise virgins. We don't want to be the five foolish ones. If today we could be of some assistance to you, it would be our joy, our delight, our privilege. The plan of salvation continues to be this. The Lord in earnestness said, Except ye believe I am He, you shall die in your sins. And that's true. John 8, 24. He also was going to say, Nay, but except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, 5. He would add to that this statement in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. 
With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Are you ready to confess the sweet words that Jesus the Messiah? If you've done all of that, then what remains is being buried in baptism for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. To have those sins washed away so that you never will face any guilt attached to them again. Your soul can be clean and pure as white. As you come forth from that watery grave of baptism, you're a new creature in Christ. If you have known that way of faithfulness, but you've strayed from it, won't you come back to your first love today, that honorable estate of faithfulness at the side of the Master, so you can be ready for the end. Then cometh the end, and now we'd like to offer this invitation. If we could be of some help to anyone, won't you come? For together we stand and together we sing.